So for product managers, the three Ps are partnering, passion, and project management. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Ricky Spencer with us, and he's a VP of product at Influx Data. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Sure. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also the company that you are working with, what kind of problems the company is solving, if there's a story there, you can tell us that would be great. Sure. So my name is Rick. Currently, I'm the VP of product at Influx Data. Influx Data is the company that makes InfluxDB. I'll tell you a little bit about InfluxDB in a minute. My background is a bit varied, though. I uh, started in the industry actually a little bit late in my late 20s, back in 1998. I was in the field of usability and user research and design. That was at Microsoft. But I was really focused on developers as my users. And so I did a lot of user research on developers at Microsoft. I left Microsoft after 10 years. By the time I left, I was what was called a lead program manager. And at the time, I'm sure things have changed since 2007. But at the time, that was sort of the, the pivotal leadership role that sort of drove, got everything organized and converged and drove everyone to ship and that kind of thing. After that, I started leading engineering teams and I went really deep into open source. I got very interested in open source. So I, I ran a pretty popular open source project for a long time. And then after I left there, I got very interested in cloud computing. So I joined a company called Bitnami as their VP of engineering. So that was my second VP of engineering role. Stayed there for about three years. That company had an exit. And so then I uh, took a summer off. And then I ended up here at InfluxDB, but as the VP of engineering for the platform team. And so I actually ran the engineering team for sort of the core cloud product that I think you know we'll mostly talk about today for about two years, two and a half years. And then I just recently got, quote, promoted to VP of product, which has been a really interesting and exciting transition for me personally. Do you want me to talk a little bit about InfluxDB and what we what we do? Or? Yeah, that would be great uh, for us and for the audience. 
to know a little bit about the kind of problems that you guys are solving and what will really you know come and use that technology. Right. Okay. So InfluxDB is really the category creator for what's called a time series database. And time series data is a certain kind of data, right? There's like relational data, there's document databases, there's log databases. Time series databases are for data where the timestamp on it is the most important attribute. For instance, like metrics from your server, like you might go out and say every every 100 milliseconds, tell me what the CPU load, CPU load is. A lot of sensor data, a lot, a lot of sensor data. So we started as an open source product that then uh, there was an enterprise version. But then about almost three years ago, we went full on SaaS. So we have a full on SaaS version of InfluxDB. Uh, InfluxDB is interesting because it's really made for builders. So it's made for people like, look, you have all this time series data. If you've been collecting it for a while, if you've been sorting a document database or a relational database, it's just not working anymore. You have too much data. You need a built-for-purpose database. So um, we're great for like handling, you know, the ingesting and allowing you to do computations and queries on all of that crush of metrics. But we also have sort of this twist where we really focus on our user, who is typically what we call a builder or a developer. And this is someone who's trying to make something on top of the data. Maybe you work at a really big company and you have a uh, very special use case for your server metrics or something. Come to us. You can use all our developer tools. You can use our, our cloud product and like really quickly, really easily get that custom solution going. Very common use cases for people build, building IoT applications on top of us. Like we're, so people come and they say, hey, let's get all the data from this factory floor. Or maybe it's more of a commercial, residential or consumer thing. Like, hey, let's get these devices working and let's create a custom experience on top of that. We achieve that by having like two principles that we follow. One is meet the developer where they are. So we provide developer tools in every language. Like, so if you're a Python developer or a Golang developer or a JavaScript developer, have all the tools to use our SaaS product in, in your language of choice. And then our like overriding design principle is something we call mean time to awesome. And that means that we always try to make it so you get the are able to write production code with the least effort and the least amount of code. That's the product, I think, for your audience, uh, if they're interested in this SaaS. Like we have this full multi-tenant SaaS version. It's available in multiple regions on all of the three biggest cloud providers. So we manage, I'm going to say, 12 or more production instances right now. And then you have been in UI UX design role, as you said, at Microsoft. You have been on the engineering management role, and then now you are on the product management role. And then the company, as you said, is more B2D, is more marketing and selling to developers. So what you are building, I guess, is more for developers, or at least when you were open source, it was the case. Maybe now it has changed. But my question is more about the way you see it. 
how it's different than when you are really building and creating a product that at the end developers are going to use versus you are building a product that non-developers are going to use. Right. There's a couple of things that come into play there. So first of all, when you create capabilities for developers, they're going to use that capability very creatively. And that means you don't have to specifically fulfill like a certain list of use cases, like customers have the following requirements, let's say in some document system, they have to be able to create them and revise them and update them and delete them. And, you know, you, you know, you just have this like discrete list of requirements. By definition, we don't know all the requirements. So we're really making a tool set that people can come being very creative with. What we find is that developers can be extremely creative about solving their problems and sometimes combine things in ways that we didn't expect. And that can be very powerful for them, but it can also create operational issues, which we just never, uh, never could have envisioned. And then on the flip side of that, you know, developers, like they're building something that they have their own users using often. Sometimes, you know, they, they're building things that are just for their own team to use, but often it's for other teams in their company, or they have their own customers who don't even know that they're using InfluxDB as the backend. Therefore, like we can't have maintenance windows, right? We can't be like all of our customers, their customers can't access the application because for our convenience, like we want to do some kind of upgrade or uh, that kind of thing. Just from like an operational uh, perspective, the sort of demands that customers put on it is maybe a little different than, um, you know, like your HR tools or your recruiting tools or your expense tracking tools, that kind of thing. I understand. Now, in order for me personally and maybe soft audience to better understand exactly what is the difference between a time series kind of, you know, database and a regular database that can store any, including the data that time is part of it. Is it about really the output? Is it really about the things that you can do afterward and you can, you know, gain the insight, the, the, the insight you gain afterward, or it's more about really the storage part of it and better organizing the data and these kind of things. What is the exact kind of, you know, capability that, you know, as a time series database um, influx data can offer that maybe otherwise wouldn't be? That's a good question. So all those things that you mentioned actually kind of go together. So here's the current situation. There's time series data everywhere. Think about all the sensors in the world. Think about all the computers in the world, everyone's phone, everyone's devices, everyone's laptop, every server in the world. Every, anything that's got even of sensors on it. Like, so there's just tons of time series data being produced all the time. That in fact has gone through a logarithmic increase, right? And so just over the last few years, what we've seen is that people who maybe they were using something like Mongo or Cassandra or Postgres, you know, these like databases that for their domains, are quite performant and et cetera. They've been storing time series data in it. Now it's grown to a point where they cannot ingest the data fast enough 
right? So like they're trying to write the time series data. They want to get real time, you know, response. Like, hey, I wrote the data. Hundreds of milliseconds later, I want to use the data to alert on it or do whatever. They can't like process the time series data that fast. And then if they go try to run a query, the query just can't complete, you know, because it's just, it can't structure the data internally. And that's because the internals of the database, right? So what we do is as you write data, we look at the schema that you're writing. So first of all, just where we do something that we call schema on write, which makes it very flexible. You can write whatever schema you want, but then we can very efficiently index based on that schema, like what tags you gave it, and then put it in order of the time dimension. So in the InfluxDB, every point has the time, like one time column. And so therefore, we were able to optimize the ingest of that data because we know that it's time series data and we can put it in the order of time based on like its schema. And then that means that we can go ahead and create a system where you can query it much faster because we know you're going to be asking like, give me data between you know this, this starting point and this end point. And since we're optimized for that down at like the file structure in which we store the data, just for that domain, nobody can come close to the performance on on the ingest or the or the query side. So the way you specialize on that, the result is you are saving time for your customers, including developers, or maybe saving time for even output and the result that they want to create for their users and for the users to ingest and gain the insight and ingest the data. It's just all of those translates to saving time for different groups of people and different kind of type of users that you might serve. So for our users, like, so for the builders who are building on top of it, like they don't have to make, they don't have to make sacrifices in their functionality. If it's, so they don't, like on other systems, they'll have to be like, well, you know, you can't query in this way you know, so we can't have those features or we can't ingest this much data. So we have to ingest less data and, you know, so like they don't have to make those sacrifices. But then, as you said, we've also built tools on top of it for developers that let them build solutions in like literally hours that otherwise would take weeks or months for developers to produce. And that especially is true, um, if I may like drill it a little bit into into the world of IoT. So in terms of the Internet of Things, one of the areas where we're just getting a lot of um, uptake and I've been talking to a lot of customers is in this industrial IoT setting. And the interesting thing about those customers is that they have a local environment, let's say a factory floor, or let's say a beer bottling plant. Like, so they're bottling the beer and they have all these machines locally to bottle the beer. And some of these beer bottling companies, like this one customer that I have in mind, very small percentage changes in their operational efficiency create millions of extra dollars for them. So they're like really willing to invest to get like these small operational efficiencies. So their situation is that they have like the factory where the the beer is being bottled and 
we actually have a version of InfluxDB that is just like a self-contained binary that they can actually run inside the factory and then do a lot of the work inside the factory, like do the analytics, create the visualizations that they want, give them the alerts that they want, like they can plop it in there. In the industrial IoT space, one thing to understand is like all the machines and everything that people have, they all output sensor data through things called PLCs, programmable, programmable logic controllers. And then there's tools like Kepware and other tools that know how to read those. And all those tools just have native support for InfluxDB. So it's super easy to drop InfluxDB there. And now you have a situation where you're able to have those analytics, like literally within like a couple hours, it's mostly just reading documentation to figure out how to get the analytics set up. But more importantly, if you have an intermittent, intermittent network connection there or just any kind of flakiness or just any kind of concern, uh, unlike like other solutions, you're at, you're in that factory can keep running, right? But then we also have uh, our SaaS cloud product and that on-prem or that local binary knows natively how to talk and sync its data back up to the cloud. And that is not code that you have to write or anything, right? We just made it so you can just configure that. The One of the key things that customers get there, though, is right now their problem is I'm collecting the data in, in the factory or whatever is the setting, but it's a lot of data. It's time series data. I'm getting at nanosecond resolution, maybe millisecond resolution. It's very costly for me and time consuming to sync all that data back up to the cloud. But with InfluxDB, you can use our tools locally to say like here, use the full resolution like on the factory floor, but then you can only send up like a uh, sample data. Like you can say, let's say you have, mil you have 100 millisecond resolution for something that you're taking, right? So that's like every second you have 10 or 100 of those metrics for a bunch of machines. Well, you can use our tooling to really quite simply say like, okay, just give me the mean for every minute. And right there, you've reduced the amount of data by you know orders of magnitude. So think of how much faster that data will sync up. And also that data is often more usable in that cloud case. So then if you have, hey, I have five factories, Right, they can all run that those that same local application there, but then they can look back and say, what do the other factories look like? Because all that data is being linked up to our SaaS version. The amount of time that that saves people to go like we have all these all this all this sensor data on the factory floor to we're getting insights across all of our factories like real-time insights, real-time alerts. Like these are things that like, you know, even uh, not that long ago would be like six month long development efforts, which would then fail, <laughs> you know? And now like our customers are doing it in, you know, like days and weeks, like kind of timeframes to get these really fulsome applications set up. And like, like I said, they can save millions of dollars just by like just finding very small 
improvements in the operational efficiency, but they can find a lot of them. The point that you mentioned with regard to real-time or near-real-time data and also sometimes, you know, being even offline and still you can do it, those are the things that, you know, defines that kind of specialty and focus of that database for those particular use cases. So definitely it makes it very kind of uh, different you know, from just the general purpose database that you can use and just, you know. Indeed, indeed. And just the amount of data that, of time series data that we can ingest and that you can make use of. If you tried to use a different database, you would just, like you wouldn't be able to ingest the nanosecond resolution data and make use of it. Yeah, I read something that I think it was in your note that you said data has gravity. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Data has gravity. So I already talked about like how much of this data gets produced, right? So let's contrast our situation with another SaaS product. Don't want to pick on them, but let's say take your HR tool, right? When you interact with your HR tool, they send you like a few megabytes of JavaScript. You send them back a few hundred kilobytes in a form post of data. Right. And then they send you another, they send you more HTML and JavaScript. You send them back, you know, another form post. As the user of that product, like, do you really care where that server is in the world? Like, how much difference is it going to make in your use of that product as you're exchanging that kind of data with it? Right. Those, those kilobytes. So, that kind of data, like that document data, that's very low gravity. It just doesn't have that much mass. So you don't mind zinging it all over the world. But like say you're monitoring your Kubernetes cluster or you're monitoring your, you're monitoring, you're developing an electric car and you're looking at all the sensors on it at nanosecond resolution. So you're producing hundreds of gigabytes, if not terabytes of data. Now you have a lot of mass there, right? And since it's got gravity, that means you actually do care. Like if you try to send that from California to Europe, like you're going to have to pay so much and it's going to take so long to send it that far. So for many of our users, the actual locality, like the physical location makes a difference to their experience, right? Because if they're managing, dealing with hundreds of gigabytes or terabytes of data, that's why we're in all the different regions in the world. And also why we're all in the different cloud providers. Because if you're generating that data on, say, AWS or Azure or, or GCE, like you don't want to send that data out of that cloud provider only to have it be ingested by another cloud provider. Like it's just going to completely bankrupt you moving that much data around, not to mention just the latency of sending over the internet. So that poses like a unique challenge to a SaaS product like us. And so that's why we've gotten really good at managing all these different production instances instead of just one. Considering your unique kind of experience with all of these kind of, you know, on different fronts like UI, UX, with engineering, with product management, I have to ask you this question because I have heard it from many different SaaS companies that sometimes it has been a challenge to them, some of them. And it's about really how a number of things, but I, because they are interconnected, but I'm going to pose maybe one or two or three of these and then feel free to separate them if you want and answer. But 
wanted to put them all in front of you so you would know that different aspects. Number one is you have the UI UX kind of design and then you have the product management and then you have the engineering. And product management normally goes and define, you know, what we need to create. And then engineering goes there and just define how to do it. And then of course UI UX is kind of in between because you need to partially define it during your you know, the process that you are saying what to create and then the rest of the details get into the engineering cycle. That is really how to do it and many details need to be defined that way. So how do you go your company position that UI UX interaction? Is it mostly owned by product management? Is it something that happens also a lot during the engineering time? Do you totally move it? to the engineering side of it. So that's one aspect, one of the points. And then I would like to know in correlation with that, that how do you really define also the interaction between product management and engineering to draw the line and say product management really needs to stay very high level and let the rest be managed by software, by engineering group, or the product management needs to go a little bit further and also get into the details and then, you know, let product engineering group focus more and just take care of the development. What is based on your experience with these companies and what you have done in different roles? How do you see these kind of interactions? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. This is actually something I think about and write about a lot. So. I'll answer in two parts. And the first part is I'll explain a little bit what we call our design framework. And then I'll explain sort of how I define the product management role and how, you know, the expectations are for product managers. The first piece of the puzzle is this design framework. And so the reason we call it a framework and not a process is because we don't want to tackle every problem in the same way, right? So if like the problem is, you know, we need to add a message about something, we want to do a good job at that, but, you know, we don't want to spend, you know, three months designing that solution versus like, we're just coming off of an experience where we just like redesign the whole query experience and, and how you deliver it. So one of the first things I did, actually it was when I was still in engineering, was put into place this thing I call the design framework. And so it's got some principles that you're supposed to follow. And the first principle is that the product definition that the design is multidisciplinary, right? So the product manager has a very important role as a facilitator in that process, but you, the expectation is that you'll bring designers in, that you'll bring developers in, depending on the um, area you're working, maybe we'll documentation, and that they will be part of the process of the product definition. And you will not limit people's input based on their discipline. So, for example, I've seen instances where people invite developers to the product definition, but the, the role of the developer is tell me if you can build this or not. But if the developer has a good idea about what should be built or good insights about the customers, 
that those insights, that input should be just as valuable as anybody else's, right? So that's the first part. Like, are you doing multidisciplinary design? Then are you con- diverging and converging? In other words, and are you like, like, like I coach people, like, don't just accept the first good idea and grab it. Like, make sure that you like really facilitate the team to like turn over a lot of rocks and think about things from different perspectives. But then you do have to choose something to in between each phase. Um, and then the third is just about like keeping people all aligned, right? The goal of all this is that all the different disciplines are aligned as you go through the process. And then there's three things that you need. Like you need a grab bag of techniques, you know, whether they're UX driven or business driven. Then I say like you need a you need a multifaceted view of what you're building. So I would say like think about the business viewpoint, think about the technology viewpoint, think about the user's viewpoint and make sure at every phase in the process, you're bringing in those three perspectives. And then finally, you need a uh, a phase model, right? And so this is where I say like, you have to take the whole team through an understand phase. What's our user data look like? What are we seeing in the metrics? What are we seeing in the in the industry? What are competitors look like? And that really the product manager's team is to like facilitate creating a common understanding and then having some way of exiting that phase with like, this is our definition of the current situation. Then you go into the envision phase, which is like, okay, at a high level, how do we envision a solution? What are our design principles going forward? What are our, who's our, who's our target user? Like, do we need a persona for that user or like, how do we model the user? That kind of thing. And then you can take that into the specification phase. As you move through those phases, different disciplines then have more or less like really active roles. So by the time you get to the specification phase, as a product manager, you're really, A, making sure that we're sticking with what we learned in the understand phase and sticking with the vision that we set, but also facilitating the developers and the designers working together to make something that's implementable. Like, and you know, but still meets meets those design criteria. That's the way that I approach that. And it's actually really moved the needle, at least in terms of like job satisfaction with people in the company, because they really enjoy, doesn't matter what discipline you are, you show up and you're like, hey, the product manager is actually like taking my input seriously. And it creates a level of buy-in into the project that you, you don't see, like if it's more like, um, the case where the product manager, like I wrote the document, I did the research, I wrote the document, I handed it to developers. Now I don't understand why they're being uncooperative. You know what I mean? Because in this case, the document is the result of the process, not the input into the process. Okay, so that leads to the second part. Unless you want to discuss any in there, I can talk about expectations for product managers. Yeah, just a quick follow-up question on that point. So is it fair to say in this process, maybe uh, things are not, you are not trying to minimize the number of hours in this process. You are not trying to say we need to get the maximum productivity out of the hours because there are more hours involved, people coming, learning, cooperating, discussing all of those things, but you are trying to get uh, the best result at the end. So when you are finishing, you make sure at least this is what the best result is rather than going to the end 
it's not really what we wanted and then you go back is it is it fair to characterize it that way or you still think that no it's not like about that much difference the number of hours that we collectively have spent in this method method rather than so i'd say a couple things about that first of all if you don't do enough on upfront work to get the alignment of your stakeholders it's going to take a freaking long time to get everything done because you're going to thrash you're going to be arguing about everything and you know etc so like it's not smart to skip the effort that goes into getting alignment but as i said before that's why we call it a framework and not a process because if you know, if there is urgency or if it is a small feature like you really want to be able to hone like design a design process for that problem that is appropriately scoped so you really don't want to go into like a small feature and be like okay we're going to spend a quarter designing something you can actually do that whole process that i just said like in an afternoon if like the scope is small or if it's something really critical like our query experience it's like at the heart of our product like no, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to, it's going to take time, but you're going to get way better results. And like, like our new query experience is just amazing. It's just like, I don't see anything that good in the industry. So the time invested was well worth it. And I suspect we actually ended up going faster, right? Cause we kind of paved the road like all the way to the end. And then when we put the actual development on it, it's just like the car could just drive quickly down that road. So makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So on the second point that, you know, where you draw the line and how far the product management should go and where the product engineering kind of a start from your perspective, there are different models that sometimes it results leaner product management team, but they pay attention mostly to the high level requirements and then leave the details to be figured out by engineering versus the other model. What is your kind of preferred method? Yeah. So again, um, one of the things that CEOs always hate about me is I really believe in local optimization. So like, like, for at the team level, like, I don't think that you can just prescribe, like, this is the way we do everything and every team gets the same directions. That drives people crazy because I'm like, especially when I was a VP of engineering, and I'd be like, sure, you can use that tool for your requirements tracking. And you can use a different tool for your requirements tracking because you're on different teams. You have different problems that you're working on. So choose a tool that's optimal for your, you know, your your environment. I kind of believe the same thing about your question about product management. It's really going to depend on the team and what they're working on, the seniority of the product managers. So the way I explain it to product managers is, um, sorry, for all the disciplines that roll up to me, they all have what I call three Ps for like setting, like those are my expectations. And so for product managers, the three Ps are partnering, passion, and project management. And so, you know, partnering is like, hey, you're the glue that holds the company together. It's one thing to launch a product, it's another thing to actually land it with customers. And that includes, so you have to, you know, partner with engineering to get the thing built, but then you have to partner with marketing, partner with sales, partner with support, that kind of thing, and um, set those expectations. Then for passion, I'm like, 
you know, you need to like have like enough customer intimacy that you're excited about the real customer and use cases, excited about the product so that you have enough product intimacy that you can like talk about it intelligently, even if it's outside of the specific team that you're working on. And then enough intimacy with the market at large, right? With the domain that we're in. What are other developer tools like? What are the other SaaS companies doing? And that kind of thing. And then the last part I call project management, which I think is like really touching on what you're talking about, right? Like, is the team getting blocked because they can't get requirements? Is the team blocked because, you know, the design team is, you know, having trouble coming up with designs? Down to like, is the team doing a good job? Are you helping the team maybe with their sprint planning, right? So that last part, like that's going to depend a lot on the team that the product manager is on and also the seniority of the product manager, right? So like, you know, people who are younger in their careers will maybe have less experience with things like sprint planning and understanding like, why are the developers asking to work on paying down technical debt? And that kind of stuff. So I want to expect somebody who's maybe a little earlier on in their journey to really be adding value at that level. But then like for our senior product managers, I actually really expect them to be able to represent for the whole development team, like what they're working on, what obstacles that they're running into, and like what is the level of technical debt versus development that they're working on and, you know, be involved in making that balance. That's all going to depend on their ability to partner, though, because if like like developers, they just they categorize people as lift or drag. And if they feel like you're a drag on their productivity, you know, you'll have a hard time partnering with them. So that's a very long it depends answer. But that's kind of how I, how I model it out in my mind. And so I'll coach depending on the team that they're on. I'll coach product managers to maybe be more or less involved in the engineering details. No, makes sense. That's really good. Uh, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> that, was it. that was a great explanation. I really loved it. I'm going to ask you also at the end, what is your favorite book or books? Something that you liked it, you read it, you enjoyed it, you thought that that has had a good impact, you know, in what you do. Right. So I read a lot. I read a certain amount of fiction just for pleasure. And I just read dopey stuff like P.G. Woodhouse and just stuff that like has no, no, I don't, I don't read, you know, heavy fiction. I read, you know, a lot of things that people in the developer tool space write. And I, you know, I stay up just because I'm interested. What are the latest languages and stuff like that? I think you're asking about like what, you know, what books have I read in the past that have really like impacted me or like changed my trajectory and, and that I go back to. That's great. That would be yeah. great. Yeah. I really like books that have helped me think about what I call my own personal code of conduct. Right. So like, you know how um, different like open source communities and things will have a code of conduct. Like these are the expected behavior for you to how to behave in this, in this uh, community. I think people should have their own personal code of conduct. And so I've really have been influenced by books that help me think about how, 
like what standards do I hold myself to in my interactions with people? One I just go back to over and over and over again throughout the years, and it's been a lot of years now, is the seven habits of highly effective people, right? I just like keep going back to that because I just think about, you know, what do those habits mean in terms of my personal code of conduct? Like, am I holding myself to those standards? There's other books like about like your personal brand. Um, There's books like... um, uh, crossing the chasm that, you know, create really useful models that have really persisted over the years. Um, and those have been really useful in my work, but that seven habits book, just like I can just keep going back to and use that as like a litmus test for whether I'm meeting my, like, my own expectations for like the ethics that a person brings to their interactions with their, with their teammates. Thank you, Rick, for joining us. This was a great discussion. I appreciate the insight that you provide. Oh, thank you. I loved it. This was really, really fun. To, those are really great, insightful questions. And I really enjoyed uh, being able to go into depth on, on some of the concepts. So thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.